Hello and welcome to a new season of Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelope the world today as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. Today, we'll be talking about the India-Germany relationship. The relationship between India and Germany does not receive as much attention as it deserves in the Indian and German strategic circles. In recent years, however, the bilateral partnership has received a big impetus, both economically and geopolitically. India and Germany have had a strategic partnership since 2001, but have recently also embarked on what is called the Green Strategic Partnership, a partnership for green and sustainable development. What is that about? Where does the India-Germany relationship stand currently? What are the challenges in taking this relationship to the next level? What are the economic, military and geopolitical drivers of this relationship? What can India learn from how Germany has become an economic and industrial superpower? What can Germany learn from India's own dynamic startup ecosystem? And finally, how can the two countries cooperate on major global challenges such as climate? Joining us today to discuss all these questions is Ambassador Ackerman. Ambassador Ackerman is the current ambassador of Germany to India. He has studied, interestingly, art history and economics and received his doctorate in art history in 1993, the same year that he joined the German Foreign Service. Before becoming ambassador to India less than a year ago, he was Director General for Africa, Latin America, Near and Middle East at the Federal Foreign Office for five years. So welcome, uh, Ambassador Ackerman. It's a pleasure to have you on this episode of Interpreting India, Carnegie India's podcast. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. We've had some great conversations, obviously, earlier as well. And today I'm hoping to talk to you about, obviously, your time here in India. I'm hoping to talk to you more about the Germany-India relationship, where we see that going, and anything else that we'd like to talk about, to be honest. So welcome again, and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Anurid. It's a great pleasure to be with you and Kanagi. It's a fantastic opportunity. I'm not a very experienced um, podcast uh, postcast person, but I think uh, I'll, I'll be managing fine with you. So I think as we were discussing, if you've done well on talk shows like <laughs> The Daily Show, I think this one will be an easy one. Um, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so, Master Ackerman, actually would love to maybe start off talking about your time here. It's been... Uh, I think this is your first year in uh, this posting, at least. Uh, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about your impressions, some highlights from your time here? So, it's not a secret that I am enjoying myself uh, tremendously here in India. As you might know, it's my second posting in India. I have been here as a political counselor between 2007 and 2010, and I came back seven months ago. So, it's I'm early in my tenure, so to speak. But seven months, by diplomatic standards, is already quite a time. Yeah, so, I, I'm not. I can't say that I'm a complete newcomer. Um, I have had a, a very, very interesting time so far with high-ranking visitors and, and interesting uh, um, moments politically. But when you ask me about highlights, I would say if I, you know, so three things come to my mind. Um, first um, is um, uh, nature. And I did a, a fantastic uh, the two days in Periyar in, in, wow, nice. in uh, Kerala in, yeah, in yeah. this, in this uh, you know, 
reserve. It's a tiger reserve where nobody ever sees a tiger, but <laughs> you see all, no, I didn't see one, but you, all, you see all sorts of other uh, wildlife. And I must say that was just fun, a fantastic experience full of elephants and birds and wild dogs and, you know, gulls and, you know, it was fantastic. And this biodiversity aspect is very important to me. And I think India has a lot to offer. Um, you have to leave once in a while cities to see, you know, what is going on in the countryside and yeah. this reserves that reserves India has are just fantastic and amazing. So that, that was a, a clear highlight. Another highlight is um, I had one, one, two books, I'd say. Um, I um, read um, with um, the greatest uh, fascination uh, Gitanjali Sri's masterpiece, Tomb of Sand, which I find really um, a fantastic book. Indian um, authors are, you know, world-class narrators, and she has put up a story that is but the, but the English translation is very well done, as she yeah. herself says, and um, and I must say that that was a fantastic uh, book. And the other book I really enjoyed was um, also uh, dealing with partition. It's Anshan Malotra's uh, uh, Remnants of a Separation. I find really a masterpiece in oral history. You know, it's something that um, uh, really touched me uh, deeply because... As she says, you know, everybody has separation uh, somehow or partition. Uh, we in Germany, um, we have after the war, all the refugees came into Germany and, and, you know, they fled, they had to flee their homelands and they had to resettle. And it's a very similar story. And that you know, resonated with me when I, when I read Angel's book. And the third uh, thing, you might be surprised, but um, a highlight was my meeting with President Murmu. Um, now, when a diplomat interacts with the president of India, it's always very formal. It's not very uh, personal. I think that's the role of the president is, is always very formal. But I must say that, you know, the fact that a person of this community is the president of India, yeah. that she sits in Ashoka Hall with her dignity and her warmth and her friendliness, I find that just fascinating, I must yeah. say. Yeah. Fantasy. I, in my previous posting, I visited Odisha and, and also Chhattisgarh, um, uh, and, you know, you see the tribal communities and you see their difficult lives. And when you have somebody of their group sitting uh, at the, or being the head of state of the Republic of India, yeah, yeah. I think it's one thing that I think all of us in India are, are very, I think, deservedly proud of. I think that. I think you should. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. And I think that uh, from the highlights you've mentioned, I think I have to say I must, uh, the first one resonates with me as much as probably the second one, because I obviously I've also written a book, but the first one I, you know, uh, my family, my wife and I and our kids, we love to spend as much time actually out of the cities. Mm-hmm. And not just because of the pollution, but I think just that, connecting with nature. And I think you told me that you've also grown up, I think, more in nature than Absolutely. in the city environment. And I think that, especially during the COVID time, the kind of time that uh, our kids were able to spend in nature mm. has helped them more than anything else that they would have done in the cities. You know, And India has so much to offer on that front, as you rightly said. From Kerala, obviously, you know, to the mountains. I don't know if you spent time much in the... I no, did this last time, but I did last time. Yeah. Next week, I'm going to Assam to spend a couple of days in Kaziranga also to, yeah, to see yeah. rhinos and, you know, other wildlife. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that too. So I think there, as you say, I rightly say, India has so much to offer. On. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so coming from, you know, wildlife to maybe uh, probably equally wild, Thanks. but maybe not uh, in perception, but <laughs> in reality, uh, you know, foreign policy, geopolitics, and, you know, obviously bilateral relations. We would love to talk 
about the India-Germany relationship. Uh, I think compared to maybe the US-India relationship or some other relationships that India has, I think we don't talk enough about the Germany-India relationship. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have this conversation. And uh, so I want to talk to you about the India-Germany relationship. Obviously, just in your first seven months, you've had the Chancellor visit just recently. And uh, coming off from that visit, obviously, but even otherwise, the economic relationship between India and Germany, I wanted to first talk about. Mm. Um, my own belief is that if the economic relationship becomes strong, then the relationship becomes deep and long. Mm. And um, so I wanted to get your sense. I know there was a big business delegation this time around right. uh, that came along with the chancellor, but maybe you can give us a slightly broader view of where you see the potential and the challenges on the India-Germany economic relationship. So um, I think I fully agree with what you say. Um, a, a strong economic partnership um, is, is a good basis for all other partnerships. Um, it is not enough. Uh, it is yes. one aspect, but it is a very um, good start, let's say. Um, we have about 2,000 plus German companies um, investing in India and you know, manufacturing working, uh, offering services from, uh, and very important in this context, not only the big, uh, you know, companies, but also very small ones um, who, for various reasons, India and see a, a opportunity for them here in India. So um, our trade balance with India is 30 billion every year, and it's a um, balanced balance, it's 15-15, which is very unusual for German and um, that's good. It's very healthy. It shows how, how healthy the relations are in economic relations. But we have to say that, you know, 30 billion in comparison to the 250 billions we do with China is not enough. And I think that's what the government sees, um, our government sees. Um, there is a clear encouragement from the government um, when it comes to the German business community to diversify. Um, that's... I think to put it very bluntly is don't put all your eggs in one basket called China. Okay. Um, you have to look uh, to other shores. And India comes to mind. I think it should come even more to mind than it does uh, because there's also Indonesia, there's Vietnam, there's Malaysia, there's Singapore. People look uh, all across Asia. But India, and, and this is what we feel, is that, that you know German companies are looking to to India and the opportunities in India more than they did before. So I think in the years to come, we'll have more and more German companies coming in, uh, to India and making business in India. I think the overall um, you know, feeling about doing businesses in, in India is satisfactory. Um, many people earn good money in India um, after having spent here a while. This is an investment that will not, uh, you know, uh, uh, will not be um, ready to, uh, you know, see the benefits very early. You have to wait for a couple of years. You have to you have to establish yourself. You have to find your way through the often not so uncomplicated Indian system. Let's put it that way. Uh, but at the end, I think everybody can make good money here. Still, there are a couple of impediments, and I think we are working very closely with the Indian government. I feel that the Indian government is very responsive to our demands or requirements and um, Mr. Goyal and his team are very, very open-minded when it comes to um, to problems. Um, not all problems can be solved, are solved, but um, generally speaking, I think that the, the spirit is very good. Now, let me say one thing that would be a complete game-changer for German business in India would be the EU-India FTA. Yes. The free trade agreement 
change basically, you know, big time, um, you know, the chances and the, uh, the, 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 the benefits for the German business in India. So Germany, the government, but also German business is hugely interested in progress in this. Yeah. Let me pick up on one of the things you mentioned early on, which is the small business right. piece. Right. So in most economic relationships between countries, the focus often remains on large corporations, large FDI numbers, um, conglomerates coming in, setting up massive plants or massive R&D centers. But one of the one of the specialities or one of the things about Germany, and as we discussed mm. last time on other occasions as well, is this concept of the middle stop. Mm. And so I want to talk to you a little bit more about it. If you look at India, India also, while we have some large corporates, obviously, many large corporates now in the Indian countries, but really the core of the Indian economy is still the SME, mm. the small and medium mm. enterprise. And that's where I see a lot of learning for the Indian SME to be from the concept of these mm. hidden champions yeah, yeah. Uh, of Germany. So maybe you can tell us mm. where you see maybe one cooperation on that and also yeah. talk about that concept because I don't think enough people in India are familiar about mm. that piece of the German so I, story. What we say is that the Mittelstand, which is basically the small and medium-sized enterprises in Germany, are the backbone of, backbone of our economy. They are highly specialized, extremely well-advanced and progressive uh, little boutique shops, I would say, with products that are basically unique and um, they have very often in mechanical engineering or so they have um, you know the percentage of, of the world market in in their products that is amazing as well. um, and and this is one of the clear strengths of the German economy now why are these people who basically have shops with 300 people at home you know this is not big it's um, it's right. it's very very small but why are they coming to India and I give you two examples one is my favorite one because it's um, a company of the region where I'm from, this very rural area you mentioned earlier. So this is a, a company that does rotational tables, which is a product I was not aware that it existed. It's a product that is very much needed for highly special, sophisticated um, manufacturing, like for example, for watches, Rolex uses these tables. So they have to be very, very accurate and they move. I mean, it's only three companies in the world produce these tables. One of them is this very, very small company from from uh, from, from yeah. so they come here and set up shop in Pune. Why is that? Because they say in our you know we are so sophisticated in our me mechanical engineering and manufacturing that we need to find the bridge into the digital world. Yeah. So what he says, you know, we need digitization in our manufacturing, and that's India is the place where they think that can happen. So what they did was not only set they set up own shop in Pune with a couple of hundred uh, people uh, producing rotational teams, but also they bought a startup, some gamers, you know, they said, you know, these guys, we buy them, they are good, they are very smart, and, you know, in the midterm, they should be the ones who develop the digitization aspect of our manufacturing. And that's very, you know, and I think this is what, what I like about this example is that India is here, not some extended assembly line of European uh, business. No, it is more than that. It is, it gives uh, you know new meaning to to, uh, to yeah. this industry, and and therefore I think this marriage, marriage of, of of manufacturing in the classical way and digitization. So this is one example. The other example I, I give you is Ereos. It's a very very big middle company. So it's not a small shop. It's a big shop. 
Um, they have been um, uh, investing in India for a long, long time in a company that does um, the works with uh, precious metals. Um, and, and they have very, this is a chemical, very, very interesting company processing uh, precious metals. And they have been working there for a long time and they have been making good business. And they now think that let's look what India can offer. Um, and they started buying and they bought a company in um, Nashik where um, some guys from IIT Mumbai, I think, developed out of plastic garbage a, a thread. And this thread is a high uh, value thread, a very, very sophisticated good thread. And all the big sports companies buy this thread. So it's from garbage, it's uh, from plastic garbage. You know? and, and this company um, does not fit in their portfolio at all. You know, they are working with sensors and precious metals, but they like this idea so much that they bought this company. Now it's quite successful. So in their India portfolio, they developed an own way of looking at Indian business. I like that, you know, because it shows that there is so much to find and so much to discover here that they say it has nothing to do with our German or European market, yeah. not with our international market, but we do it here in India because we feel there is so much ingenuity, so much creativity, and we have been rewarded with such a good, you know, business opportunity that we should look into this market. Yeah. No, those are both excellent examples of where I think, as you rightly said, both countries and the businesses in both countries, even at the small and medium level, can actually find ways to cooperate, work together and create value, mm-hmm. right? And and especially your, I think the second example that you mentioned is a great segue into the other piece of the relationship I want to talk about, which I see as becoming more and more important over the coming years, which is the energy piece. Mm-hmm. I think the cooperation around energy between India and Germany obviously possibly offers a template mm-hmm. for India also with other countries, but let's talk about the green strategic partnership between India and Germany. There's obviously big money that has been Mm. allocated to it, Uh, but let's first talk about the vision behind it and what do we see as the long-term goals and objectives of that green and strategic partnership? Because in the foreign policy world, this kind of partnership is a new one. We've heard of economic partnerships, Mm. FTAs, strategic partnerships, but we've not had as many successful green strategic partnerships. So let's uh, hear your views on that. Uh, Andre, if you allow me, I would start uh, to talk about this uh, subject uh, related to the old subject we are talking about because there's two sides of our partnership with, this, with the Indians on sustained, green and sustainable development. One is a private sector part. That's right. I will go to, to talk about the non-private sector, the, the, the government part, but what I find very encouraging and extremely fascinating is that we have a lot of private companies coming to India and working in exactly this sector. So we have, for example, Enercon, which is a very, very big windmill producer, who set up up shops shops for windmills in Tamil Nadu with two big factories, uh, thousands of employees. We have a a company called Verbio from East Germany who just put a a big biomass um, uh, plant uh, near Chandigarh where stubble, you know, the stubble burning in Delhi, all the the stubble will be collected and turned into biomass and and produces energy. There is a small startup from Cologne that will, uh, with very little money set up, bio-coal processing uh, plants. I don't know how you say that. I mean, it's it's like, like big power stations basically for yeah. bio 
from little money and they will be all over the country and you know trying to get biofuel in the in the in the in the, in the earth in the, in the in, on the soil in order to improve farmers and they can give away for, they can give it away for nothing because they get paid through emission certificates you know? yeah. so um, this is you have so many good ideas on this field also in the private sector that makes me believe that india is a very interesting partner for this climate and energy thing because it's beyond government to government it's also with civil society it's with private sector so now back to the government we have this partnership for green and sustainable development which basically collects all our efforts in uh, with together with our indian partners um, um uh, when it comes to energy transition transition and it comes to um, uh, organic uh, you know development like organic farming smart cities sustainable cities we have basically three pillars of this partnership one is the biggest one is um, energy transition so um, we help um regional energy providers to change their mix and saying that once you want more renewables in your mix and you need financing that's where germany comes in uh, this is the biggest thing we have credit lines very 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 um, attractive credit lines you have kfw and for example in rajasthan there is an energy provider that relies heavily on these credits because he wants to they want to change their the energy mix there's the second leg is is what we call the smart cities initiative we want uh, cities to be more sustainable to be uh, you know more energy conscious conscious we want to, uh, cities to be more um, smart when it comes to uh, to garbage when it comes to uh, public transport and there are a couple of wonderful projects one of them is the very famous the water metro in Cochin which um, uh, KFW is also financing um, that's part of it and then we have uh, the, this, this, the, the smallest pillar if I may say um, is, is biodiversity and agroecology um, very important small but very important um, so there there are many many so the, we are working with um, with uh, you know the uh, river rejuvenating, Ganga yes. rejuvenating. Uh, we are re- working with in, in Andhra, for example. We are working with the government to to uh, promote organic farming, uh, like they did in Sikkim. You know, the yeah. trying to reach out to organic farming. We are working with reserves, also natural reserves, in order to uh, protect biodiversity. So this is basically the partnership we have every year more than a billion euros for this partnership so it's by far the biggest development um, yeah. i think after japan um, and japan is very much uh, as you know the biggest ma- amount of money goes to this high-speed uh, train Correct. between Correct. And so the germans i think have the biggest um, um, portfolio when it comes to energy and um, and 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 climate protection and, and that's something which we feel very strongly about and we want to um, to work very closely with the indian side now i think we have excellent partners in the Indian government on that there is a lot, as I said before, a lot of creativity, a lot of thinking, a lot of, um, you know, ingenuity when it comes to uh, how to tackle climate uh, change and how to cope with it. Sometimes we are not um, entirely on on the same page, but that's natural. I think that's yeah. uh, how it goes between countries. And, so therefore, I think it's, it's I, I consider this partnership as a, a big success so far, and we have uh, pledged this partnership for the next ten years. So it's basically every year a billion plus uh, euros being spent on this on these matters. Yeah, no, I think two two points stand out from I, I think the the way you've described the partnership. One, I think, is the cheaper finance piece. Mm-hmm. Right, India has just issued um, 
its own green sovereign bonds. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, I've just written a piece on this climate finance piece that's come out today uh, with Carnegie, where those green bonds are not necessarily that much cheaper for India. Mm-hmm. And when you mention, you know, the the cheaper mm-hmm. finance that you're being able to offer through KFW, etc., and I I think the rates are in the range of two and a half, three, three and a half percent, which you know, for example, India's sovereign green bonds are still at from if I'm not wrong at seven percent, mm-hmm. right? Just a few basis points and what you would get otherwise commercially. And I think that's a very important piece from the Indian standpoint, because unless we can get cheaper finance, a lot of our transition on the climate side will be slower than what we want and also the world wants. Yeah. Uh, the other piece, I think, is what you started off with, which is the private sector piece. And I hope that the business delegation that came uh, with your chancellor this time around had a lot of these clean energy companies mm-hmm. as part of it, because I do think that it's not just a crisis that we're dealing with here, on the global level and at the national and city state level, but an opportunity. It's a massive economic opportunity for companies to uh, be early leaders in this climate transition that I think all countries are at different stages at. But to the extent that the Indian and German private sector can cooperate on this and capitalize on this opportunity, and I believe it's a once in an era opportunity, much like the Industrial Revolution, this energy transition or climate transition that we're going through is really a once in a lifetime or once in an era opportunity that I hope that Germany can offer its expertise and India can offer its expertise, talent to combine that and create value. No doubt, no doubt. And I think um, uh, you are completely right when you say it's it's an opportunity and, and that's how we see it in Germany. It has been creating a lot, a lot of jobs in Germany and this whole transition, the, the whole transition um, Away from fossils towards renewables is um, is a is something that, which has to be thought through thoroughly. But it's also offering huge opportunities for many people. Yeah. And you know, um, I just want to mention here that Mercedes Mercedes has um, started to build the first e vehicle. The first German car producer in India now comes out with an e vehicle. E vehicles are very, um, you know, uh, the taxes on vehicles in e vehicles in India are very low. So it's a good opportunity, even if you, if you want to, to buy an expensive car, the e vehicle, the Mercedes e vehicle with this low tax is, uh, is good. And then I find that also a very clear signal, you know, towards um, uh, India that you will, you will have more e vehicles in, in months to come. Others will follow, other car uh, producers will follow. Also, yeah, so um, um, there is. I see a lot of uh, potential in the EPC market also. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, mobility and renewable energy have been two big focus areas. I think even for India, mm. in the last few years as part of its own climate transition strategy. Can I say, one of the big changes I've seen in, in Delhi after coming uh, after coming back after twelve years is uh, metro. Uh, the <laughs> Delhi metro. I'm one of the very few ambassadors I think that take the who takes the metro, metro regularly. Um, but um, it is a state of the art metro yes. that, that transports four million people um, every day, which is a, an amazing amount of money uh, of people. And um, and it does in in a very reliable way and quick and fantastic. So I you know it's better than Berlin Metro. I have to admit. And when the minister, my minister, the minister of foreign affairs, when she came, he made it a point for her to take the metro to Old Delhi. So we went with her on the metro. She was very impressed. Best way to get to Old Delhi, <laughs> I know, is metro. But no, I, I can I can second that. I think uh, having lived in various cities around the world. The New York subway, for example, uh, when you compare it to the Delhi Metro, of course, that's many, you know, hundred, over 100, 150 years old yeah. now in New York. But yeah, I think the Delhi Metro is one of those examples of where India has actually managed to really uh, put in some state-of-the-art infrastructure 
in public uh, transit. And I hope that that can be replicated, right, um, across. Um, let us now maybe move to the defense and strategic uh, side of the India-Germany partnership. Uh, that was part of the focus, obviously, of your chancellor's visit also. I think India has had a very strong security partnership with many other countries. Mm-hmm. And the India-Germany one on the defense side is maybe not as, again, on the, similar to maybe the economic piece, not where it could be. Mm-hmm. So maybe uh, you could talk to us a little bit about where you see the defense and security partnership between India and Germany as it is today yeah. and where you'd like to see it, uh, let's say, three to five years from now. So uh, I think we have to say start by saying there is a defense and strategic partnership with India. Um, there is an old um, um, and established, well-established and fruitful contact between the, the armies. There is a... Um, a very regular flow of uh, of German military products into India, uh, but and this is I think what I hear in your in your question also. It is certainly not as developed as it is with other European countries. You know, our French friends and neighbors right. have a different different partnership with India. Now, I think then let me let me explain by the, or start by explaining, um, uh, and and therefore you have to look a bit what happens in Germany proper. So there is. Our current coalition is um, is uh, the you know the three party coalition, and there are um, uh, when it comes to export of weapons and armament, there are it, in one party, particularly in the Green Party, there are um, you know question marks, and um, and that um, leads to the fact that Germany, unlike other European countries, is restricted when it comes to arms export Correct. everywhere. It's not in India, it's a specific issue um, for every country outside NATO, let's say, mm-hmm. outside NATO. Um, um, I think, you know, I say that with all due caution, this is beginning to change. Um, uh, and geopolitics ha- have to do with it. Um, um, I think um, what you've seen, the chancellor was here, the foreign minister was here, other ministers will come. There is a... Um, a shift towards India, which is very much noticed here because Germany is not alone. You know, everybody looks at India in a, in a very, um, in a more attentive way than, than before. Um, and therefore, I think I foresee in the near future, um, uh, you know, more um, engagement. Now, one engagement is already there. This is in the Pacific. Uh, and I think the Indians have noticed very clearly that the German army has expanded its activities in the Indo-Pacific. There was this uh, frigate Bayern last year who did a big tour to the Indo-Pacific. He was in Bombay also. And next year there will be a new frigate and together with the French, um, as it seems, we will do something in the the Indo-Pacific. We have planes in the region. We have this pitch black, was it? Um, The Australian maneuver where German planes took part. So the Indo-Pacific has come to to our attention in a much bigger way than it, it used to be. So I think you can um, you can consider the Germans in now in the Indo-Pacific, of course, in their limited possibilities, but it's an area where we, uh, you know, with our Indo-Pacific guidelines, where we'll have uh, more more uh, activities in the years to come. That's right. And, and of course, the Indo-Pacific, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the last several years now that countries like Germany and France could and maybe should uh, get more active in the Indo-Pacific. But one complicating factor in that, uh, and that has maybe sometimes even taken resources or focus away from that, is obviously something closer to your border, which is the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about 
your view on where we see that going? It's been now over a year. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a very clear outcome in sight. Uh, what are your views on that? Do we see any possibility there for a negotiated outcome in the Russia-Ukraine uh, war? Are there other things that we are not maybe thinking about as a world as ways to resolve that conflict? What are your views on that? So, Anurid, I think um, everybody wants a negotiated solution somehow. We want this war to end and we want we see that a negotiated solution would be the best way yeah, to, to end it, yeah. ideal outcome. But frankly, I, it is very difficult to see how that is going to uh, be happen, uh, happening soon. Now, I listened very carefully to what uh, Lavrov said in this Rezina um, uh, dialogue, um, where the moderator very you know friendly and I think overly friendly, frankly, I would have asked some very different questions. Um, but um, he said, you know, when is the hour of diplomacy coming back? And Lavrov would not commit to that. He said, you know, the Ukrainians are the ones who don't want. And he could have said, we are ready to negotiate, you know, but he didn't say that. Uh, he didn't say that. He was clearly uh, saying that this is not the time, basically. That's what I heard in the undercard. So I, I fear that in the months to come, I don't see a negotiated solution coming up because a negotiated solution must be, you know, acceptable to both sides in a way. Yeah, And, you know, frankly, Ukraine has been attacked, has been invaded. They have uh, annexed in Ukrainian territory. And it's very difficult to see how this situation as it stands right now is structured with the Ukrainian uh, government. I must say my comprehension is complete. Uh, I think I, I, I feel what, they, um, what the Ukrainian side uh, really uh, is demanding, namely the complete withdrawal of Russian troops from Ukraine is uh, entirely my government. My personal view. Uh, I think um, what we see is a small country is attacked by a big country under some pretext to get some, uh, you know, to expand their territory, and and this is uh, can't be uh, can't be acceptable in our times anymore. So, I feel that um, uh, the Ukrainians uh, are fighting courageously. They are really, uh, you know, to everybody's surprises, to everybody's surprise. They are uh, holding on, um, and um, but at the same time, I don't see the Russian side, uh, you know, because of they don't want to lose face, um, withdrawing somehow. So I think this war will be with us for a while. It'll be a long, protracted one. Uh, what's the NATO view on this? Is there a so NATO is a defense alliance? You know, let me make that very clear because in India sometimes you hear very rare and strange things about NATO. NATO is a defense alliance that is not meant to attack other countries. So basically, let's get the facts right. The, uh, the facts are that the Russians attacked Ukraine and, and invaded Ukraine, not not NATO. So NATO clearly has said, you know, we will support Ukraine um, in this because it is a greater good that is at stake here. That's the international order. And international order means safety of borders. And India, of all countries, knows what safety of borders means. You know, your own country is exposed to border conflicts in many ways. So I think we have all, you know, Right, and also there is um, to to fight for this uh, for for sustaining the international order as it was developed over the decades of um, of the last century. Now, you know, Europe certainly was always a a big era, a big uh, piece of land where war had all the time. You know, I mean, over the centuries you see war after war after war. But since forty five, Europe has managed for a long, long period to stay without war, whereas other parts of the world were very much involved with wars. But after the trauma of the Second World War, Europe has 
um, stopped being the epicenter of war, I would say. Um, and that led to, a, so in Germany, in my country, led to a uh, thinking, maybe in hindsight, a little naive thinking that war is over in Europe. Yeah? And that you know, military uh, self-defense is not as necessary as we would consider it now. Um, and therefore, uh, I think in Germany, you, this, this war has led to a complete reassessment of this whole security um, uh, structure, uh, our own, NATO, but also the fact that war in Europe is possible, uh, is something that people had to get used to. And therefore, you see what we say, what we call the Zeitenwende, the, 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 you know, the turning point, um, yeah. um, uh, where we invest heavily in our military again. Uh, we will have Sweden and Finland be part of NATO, um, um, and we will support Ukraine with uh, all the necessary means. Yeah, and you know, you, you obviously mentioned the post-World War II era, and that's a important benchmark for us to like look back at and see whether we are now again at that turning point where... If a cold war between the Soviet Union and the U.S. shaped that mm -hmm. post-World War II era, today the geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China mm -hmm. threatens to turn into another Cold War-esque situation. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that we are on throws off another mm -hmm. sort of split world, which obviously was not the case, uh, you know, since the 90s? Um or, or, or is, is the fear of a Cold War uh, not justified? Or a Cold War-esque situation not justified? I think history doesn't repeat itself uh, you know, normally. History is not, you, you will not see time again things happen that, that happened before. So I think the Cold War scenario um, is, is over in, in many ways. And let me say that you know, even during the Cold War, our relation with the Soviet Union was, was better than our relation with Russia is today. You know, I mean, this is very important. So, um, um, but what I see uh, with China uh, is this huge challenge for each and every one of us to, you know, try to see the danger um, and see the opportunities also. So, China is a competitor. It is a rival. It is a very, very um, how can I say, the country where you have to ask a lot of questions when it comes to regional behavior. At the same time, as I said before, it is a very important part of the international economy. Um, and you can't um, you know, cut that from one day to the other. We have seen that our dependence on Russian oil and gas, you know, showed us in, albeit for a short time, put us in quite quite a lot of dire straits anyway. Uh, with China, it would be 100 times more. You know? So there, I think the, the interesting or the most important thing is to, you know, to be and keep being involved with China without losing you know, our sight when it comes to the uh, parts of, of, of China's politics. That and do you think the world can pull that off? Pull that off, kind, that kind of balance in that relationship where you continue the relationship as was the case earlier, maybe slightly reduced, but still remain cautious. Is that possible? And even from the Chinese standpoint, do you think that's possible? I think what we see in China now is that they are very, very keen on keeping the Europeans and keeping the distance to the Americans. So what, what you see is they try to involve the Europeans in a way, but, you know, uh, keeping the Americans at arm's length. And that will not work. 
that will not work. Yeah. This is so you have to see the West and as a united house. Yeah. And so you yeah. feel like they will act in a very coordinated manner and the Chinese will not be able to choose one or the other. You see that, that the West has been very united on the Ukraine uh, Ukraine uh, portfolio. And and, um, and I think that shows that if, if need be, the West is really very, very close. Um, um, and this idea of divide and rule is not going to work. It's, uh, it works yeah. maybe with one or other country, smaller country in Europe, um, Hungary or others, but in the, in the, in the large way, it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, no, I think we are in for uh, a time where diplomacy, I think, will become even more important and more complex. <laughs> I think the moment you have cases where negotiated outcomes are so hard, it's very important actually for diplomacy, at least behind the scenes, to continue. Because otherwise, if you have clear breaks in communication, whether it's in the case of the Russia, Ukraine, or the West versus China, I think you're in for a much more dangerous geopolitical environment. So you you see you know that the the the, the, the chancellor, my chancellor, is talking to Putin in a sort of regular way. Um, he um, had a long discussion with Prime Minister Modi on that also. I think the feeling is that there is no not much of a movement on the on the Russian side, but at least there is a channel. You know, exactly. and that's, important. that's right. That's right. Um, you know the one piece that we may we'll talk about before we conclude here, Masha um, Akman, is the people to people piece between mm-hmm. India and Germany. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in the U.S. I've seen how important the people to people relations are, and in my experience, the U.S. India relationship would not be where it is if it wasn't for the number of Indians and Indian Americans in the U.S. on one side and the amount of uh, exposure that people from both countries have to each other. On the Germany in their front, I know that there are lots of students. I have several friends even from my school who've studied medicine there. I have studied with a lot of German students mm. during my time at uh, Harvard and here at Wharton. Where do you see that people-to-people relationship going and how can we expedite maybe those people-to-people and cultural relationships between these two nations? So I think um, there I'm completely confident that we'll see m- many, many more uh, people-to-people contacts over the coming years. So the Indian diaspora in Germany is uh, 200-something thousand. Uh, it's not uh, the biggest diaspora, but what we can say already is the most successful diaspora in Germany is the Indian diaspora. So as I, as you mentioned before, we have 35,000 Indian students in Germany, and I have 21,000 new applications for the next two semesters, 21,000. So it is an enormous, we are overwhelmed by this number and we basically can hardly cope with it because it's so many. But that shows that there is a clear dedication when it comes to Indian students for master programs to go to Germany, as they are taught in English, as the state universities are very good and they are for free. So many people go, um, so I think the Indian diaspora will grow through students, but also through skilled labor migration. And we will see that um, big time in the in the, in the in months and years to come. Um, there is a urgent need for migration in Germany. It's a big, you know, they, they think we need about in the next 15 to 20 years, we would need 6 million people to migrate to Germany in order to keep the economic performance we have. Um, Germany is still growing, although our demography is not growing. We have a birth rate that is below 2.1%. But um, we are going through migration, and um, that is the clear um, uh, intent. Um, What's been the main barrier you feel uh, for greater migration of skilled or other labor? Oh, I think 
what we, we see is there is quite a successful program when it comes to um, high-skilled high uh, labor migration, so IT experts or something. If you get a contract in Germany and some salary, some um, amount of, of the, uh, annual salary, you get a visa in two weeks. That's no problem. But now what we need is also lower-income migration. You know, like, uh, you know, the chancellor was meeting four people who were about to leave uh, South India for Germany. One engineer, one nurse, and two masons. Uh, they were, you know, learning German. And German was quite okay. I was there. It was quite impressive. And they will go to some um, you know, place in North Western Germany where I feel hopefully they enjoy it a bit, you know, coming from Karnataka. <laughs> but, it's, uh, but they are you know, looking forward to a very, very good job and, 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 and a good salary. So I think we need to lower the threshold for these people because we need caretakers, we need nurses, and we need also craftsmen. We have now from Kerala, I think 10 apprentices for butcher coming to Germany and everybody making big fuss of it. Uh, you know, 10 people, it's not enough. We need more of that. So th this is, will be uh, one of the uh, main areas of our uh, bilateral cooperation will be the skilled labor migration. And I think we'll see a lot, a lot of people coming. Now, let me get back to the students because that's important. Once you have a degree in Germany, you finish your study in Germany, you have 12 months to find a job. So you can stay on for 12 months to find a job. I can assure you that everybody from India will find very, almost everybody will find a job in, in very little time. So, yeah. so I've talked to, to some Indians who go to the applied, um, to the universities of applied science in some place, they have found in, a job in a month or and they are very happy. In terms. So I think what we'll see is what the, you know, the demographic experts would call circular migration. That they study in Germany, they do a degree in Germany, they stay for a couple of years in Germany, they earn good money, they go back to India with their expertise, earn good money in India also. And that is a, is a you know, there is a link between Germany and India that is very strong. So the best example is Sindhu, the, uh, the, the president of S, uh, SAP Labs in, in yep. Bangalore. She's a fabulous woman and she um, uh, is, uh, you know, she lived in Germany for 15 years with SAP, then she came back to India. And that's right, that's right. And I so hope this that... Is, yeah, this is I, the way, you know, how it should work. That's right, that's right. No, I completely agree. And I hope that some of these Indian students and Indian skilled um, folks who are migrating to Germany also become entrepreneurs. Yeah. But I think if you again look at the U.S. as an example, uh, the fact that many of the Indian students in the U.S. eventually turn entrepreneur mm. and then create what is really an example of entrepreneurship, innovation, and wealth creation mm. that really inspires a lot more students than also to go there. I have uh, no doubt that yeah, that's right. Well, Ambassador, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for talking to us about everything from economics to energy to wildlife to, to your own personal travels to books and uh, obviously to the more strategic affairs that we must talk to talk about when we are sitting in Delhi. Um, but I hope that you have a great uh, time ahead also in Delhi and actually more importantly, more outside of Delhi yeah, yeah. than just inside Delhi as we discussed and you get to visit more wildlife reserves and work on biodiversity, which is I think a piece close to your heart and mine and spend time in the mountains and other parts of India. Thank you so much for being here with us and we hope to continue working with you at Carnegie India and uh, hopefully building on the German-India partnership. Thanks, Anari. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. And I will tell you that I have no doubt that my time will be great here. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening and see you next time.